A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we finished up the book of Hebrews, our study in the book of Hebrews last week, we're entering into this Advent season and the Christmas season. I want to do uh, just a brief couple of weeks on the, the theme of Advent and Christmas. And people sometimes say, you know, gosh, how do you come up with something new to say at Christmas? There's basically just one story, right? I mean, there's shepherds and there's angels and there's donkeys and census and all that stuff. And it, <clears throat> it's yeah, if you want to try to dig in and find some new fact no one's ever found before, you're going to struggle. The difficulty is, is that sometimes the real miracle, I think, gets obscured in some of these details. We wonder about the star of Bethlehem and how was it that it hung over a thing. You can sort of think yourself to death about all these things and miss what I think is the real miracle. So I'm, I'm calling the next couple of weeks, we're going to be dealing with this idea of, of incarnation. For people who struggle over, boy, can the Bible be true you don't have to really get much farther than the fact that God put himself in human form, came to earth, died, and rose again. You get past all that, the other stuff in the Bible about things just shouldn't bother you that much, really. Because if you can get by this, and yet this miracle is the one that transforms us. And so what I want to do is I want us to go, we're going to look at John, this passage in John a bit over the next few weeks that Bud read, John 1, but I, I want to start where the New Testament starts. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 1. Now, anyone knows that to uh, start a book or any uh, story, it's, the opening line should grip you. It should grab you. You know, you should have was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, you, sh- you should have a gripping, 
you know, gripping story. In a, it's a truth universally acknowledged, right? That a single man in possession of great fortune is in want of a wife. You got to read it after that. You got to figure out what, what's happening. So this has got to be, I mean, face it, this is probably the most gripping opening you can imagine. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of a David, the son of Abraham. I know you, you can't wait to go on, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Hold on. I know you're, you're, you're riveted at this point. <clears throat> now, most of us, when we read this, this genealogy, or the one in Luke 3, or whatever, or in the Old Testament, we think, oh, it's like that game Sorry, where you get to the point in the slide, and you can slide past everybody else. You know, have you ever played that game? Sort of what we do with the genealogies, right? Sort of get to the genealogy, and whew, now I can slide past that chapter because we don't know these people. We don't, I mean, we, we, Abraham I know. Finally, we get to a name I recognize. When I preached through the book of Matthew last year, I talked about the fact that this ties us into the Old Testament, which it does, and it br- bridges the gaps between the Old and New Testament. But wait, there's more. It does so much more than that. And I want us... In seeing this foundational miracle, I, I don't want us to be obscured by the details, and I want us to try to look at the Scripture from the point of view of someone who doesn't know what's coming and that haven't read it before. So let's try to put on our haven't been raised in a Christian environment. For those of you who haven't, don't know the Bible that well, I want to try to give us the arc of the story this morning and why this is in, in the gospel, in the first two centuries, Matthew was the gospel most widely distributed when they tried to put together, when they did put together the order of Scripture. They had four gospels to look at that were canonized, that is, they felt were God's word, and they decided this was the one that we're going to enter with. And they knew as well as we do that the opening lines, the story matters, how you start And so I want us to see why this is bringing us to the point of the most important, the most important thing that we celebrate this Christmas and why it ushers us into the the bigger story. The Bible is one story. So much of the reason we are in in weakness in the church is that we we atomize we 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 take scripture and we break it down and we argue over this verse or that verse and how it does the bible is one arcing story and so we want to not cut it up and so i want to go all the way back all right so we're, we'll look, if you got your bible we can open go all the way back to genesis 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's a good opening, right? That grabs us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you notice the way John 1 began? In the beginning was the Word. In a sense, I would have started, I would have put John first in those four because it's such a great parallel, right? In the beginning and in the beginning, and we should notice that and we should see that, and yet they didn't. We look at Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations 
And if you do that not in the Hebrew, but in the Greek that would have been read during Old Testament times, the, the words there of, of Genesis, the, 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 the uh, Genesis Biblios, the, the beginning, the, the generations, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Hold on to that for a minute, and we're going to come back to that. So, utopia. God's created this perfect world, right? It's fantastic. And he creates man. First pivotal verses, he creates man. Remember, you've never read this before. So you have, in the beginning, God created. And over six days, whatever the day looked like, he creates the world. And then God said, Genesis 1.26, let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Boy, if you're reading that for the first time, you're like, that's, that's huge. He we can stop there. We are created in God's image. What does that mean? We get to love and think and reason. We get to do, have choice and we get to know beauty and we get to relate to God. Your fish doesn't do that, right? So here we are. We're like, That's fantastic. And then what happens? God rests these are the generations of the heavens and the earth in, in 2-4. And all of a sudden, chapter 3 comes. Man and, women, man and woman are created. They're tending the garden. They're living in relationship to this creator God. And then they decide they know best. And you read for the first time that they disobey God. They say, uh, maybe the serpent's right. Maybe God didn't really say what he said. They eat. They surely die. They're cut off from God. And God releases his judgment for what they have done. And here we have the really first promise comes out, arguably, the first promise given in sort of a prophetic way, verse chapter 3, one of the most pivotal verses in all of Scripture, chapter 3, verse 15. Well, I'll, I'll do verse 14 to do the whole uh, curse. He's speaking to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So if you're reading this, you're thinking, okay, utopia. Now it's dystopia, right? We all, dystopian novels are, you know, they've been the rage for a long time. If you've read Hunger Games or you've read, uh, you know, anything that tells you that there's, uh, you know, the matrix. I mean, you know, the, you, you have, things have been destroyed. And what 
Tabitha and Megan came up and spoke about this morning with human trafficking is one of a thousand ways in which our world is bent. And each one of us has suffered the bentness of the corruption of the world, everything that's flown out of this. And in particular, I just want to think about how disconnected the loneliness, the isolation that our culture, that we experience, and what it leads to is meaninglessness and ultimately despair. And we look around and we lament and we mourn for people who are taking their own lives or who are hurting themselves. And you think, well, this is the fruit of what happens when you live in dystopia where, where there's no answer. There's nothing is, is as it should be. And human trafficking, one of the horrible results of that. And so if you're reading this again for the first time and you say, man, this is really distressing. This is really depressing. And yet, here's the promise. I'm going to put enmity between you who facilitated this curse and an offspring of Eve and Adam is going to bruise your head. You're going to, and, and he, you shall bruise his heel. That is, the, the imagery is that your heel is going to stomp on the head of this serpent. And you say, okay. Somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. Who is it? Okay, we have our first clue now. He's a child of Adam and Eve. That doesn't narrow it down a lot. It means it's human. It's not a cat coming to save you. It's human. All right? So now we begin to read. We have enjoined the, the story. The great story, this, this story, we read it over and over again in literature and, and in great works of art of somebody's coming. See, the Bible is one story. Here's, here's my one-sentence story. The, and I'll, I'll, yes, it's alliteration, but he's got to forgive me. The, the one story is the arrival of a righteous rescuer to redeem and restore a wrecked and ruined realm. That's the story of the Bible. I don't care if you're reading Chronicles or Obadiah or Jude, that's the story. The question is, how does this fit? There's so many facets to the story. So here we are. We know it's a child of Adam and Eve. Next clue comes in Genesis 12. And God chooses one man, Abraham, to represent him. And the next clue is now given to us. In Genesis 12, this promise, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We begin to trace the line. It's coming through Abraham. And then we learn the story of Abraham's son, Ishmael. That must be the oldest child. It must become, oh, no, not the child of promise. We learn it's co- he's coming through Isaac. The rescuer is coming. And then we read in Genesis 49, Isaac's son, well, we read Jacob first, whole story, the most dysfunctional family ever, but we learn it's coming Isaac to Jacob. And then in Genesis 49, one of Jacob's children, Judah, and it's said over him, he will wield a scepter and a ruler's staff. 
This is the kingly one. The people, it says, will be obedient to the one coming out of Judah. So now if you're tracing it, where is the rescuer coming from? He's coming from Abraham. He's coming through Isaac. He's coming through Jacob. He's coming through Judah. And then we just get a mess, right? It's just a mess. We learn the ups and downs and the story of so much corruption and so much sin playing out and then bursts of righteousness a thousand years later from Judah's tribe we seem to have the promised Messiah it's the seed of a woman this guy he's a warrior he has a man after God's own heart he's setting things right he's unifying Israel he's good-looking he's a warrior and you think David he's the Messiah can you see why people reading this would have thought he's the one This is it. Everything's coming together. The prophecy's coming true. But we see it's not. David's a man of blood. David falls into sin. Maybe it's his son. Maybe it's Solomon. He's going to build the temple. Nah, Solomon's a half-heart. And then despair. We just get all the way for 500 years until the people of Israel are shattered. They're in exile There's nothing left. There's no nation left anymore. They're just Jews wandering in the desert and in the country, figuring out, who are we? Can we even keep our culture together? Someone reading this at this point and getting to Malachi would think, wow, it's never coming. And there's silence. There's no kings anymore. They're gone. There's no prophetic voice anymore. The priests are corrupt. There's nothing. Who's going to rescue these people? Who's going to rescue us? You're reading this. Where's the offspring of Eve? Where's the serpent crusher? Way back in Genesis 2, we read this. Biblios... Genesis, the book of the genealogy. And you turn and you open to Matthew chapter 1 and it says, Biblios genealogy. Let's trace a person who might fit the bill. Back to Matthew 1 with me, please. 400 years of silence and it says, this Biblios genealogy of this man the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he starts with Abraham and he begins to trace and Luke traces him all the way back to the child of Adam and Eve. He's come in the flesh right through the line that was always promised that somebody's going to set things right. Somebody's going to stomp on the head of the serpent. And so, for someone reading this and hadn't known about it, you have these generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile down to Joseph and then Mary. And if you'll notice in this, he brings in women and brings in women of men and women of questionable character. And he he says, this man in the flesh, 
coming is going to be the one. I want to set up the arc of this because I want you to say, why does this matter to us? Most of us here are followers of Jesus. Some may not be yet, but why does this matter to us? And here's why. is because we do not need uh, morals to live by and principles to live by. They're, they're cheap. All religions have morals to live by and principles. They do. That is a mark of all religions. They tell you what to do, and you need to measure up to that. This isn't really a religion. It is. I mean, we, we've made it one in a sense, but you have someone who understands and who fit inside you. He wore your clothes, as it were. He didn't say, the way not to be lonely, the way not to be isolated is to get friends. Woo! He says, I know what it's like to feel isolated and lonely and hungry. I know. See, there's, there's places inside each of us. If, if we got up there and there was a movie of your thought life and your heart life and mine, there would be great shame in all of us. Just Let's just fess up. There would be stuff within us that we would not want to have shown on the screen here. And because of that, we feel, I can't, I can't do this. I, I, I don't know how to be a person of integrity that is one operating the same way because I know what's in my heart. And it wasn't until someone whose life could be up here and was completely connected to his father and said, this, not only this is the way to live, but I'll do this through you, with you, in you. It means that we get to go back in a sense. We're this return to Eden, this sense of walking in fellowship with God, it's coming. It's coming for those of you who trust in the Lord. It's it's kind of dawned now, and we have glimpses of it now, but it isn't here now. This world is broken. We live, I feel it in my thumb and my back and my shoulder, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I know the corruption. It's coming. It's here. And yet, he, the heel crusher, the one who stomped on the head but bruised, he was bruised. He's coming to set things right. He's here to set things right. And we need this. We need this. Someone who not only understands, but also empowers us to live differently. Over the next two weeks, I want to unpack for us not only why this matters so much, but why at this Christmas time, when we read and see some of the parts of the story, I, I think they don't really matter to us because until we know that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he came to be just like you and me, and yet God, 
we'll get sucked into a superficial Christmas that, I mean, our, our, our culture is untethering, right, from this meaning. And it's, I mean, it just is. It's not, I mean, it's just what culture does. I'm not downing it, but I was listening to, you know, the, the jingles that are going on in the stores now, and I was listening to, and again, I'm just picking on one. I don't let this ruin if you really like this song. It's fine. But it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I was just listening to the words of that. Have you ever thought about the words of that? Why is it the most wonderful time of the year? Well, there's uh, carols for ring, or, or, uh, sleigh bells ringing and uh, songs for singing. There's scary ghost stories. What? Christmas? They've, they've merged Halloween and Christmas, right? It says there's scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. What? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. I don't want us to get sucked in. It is the most wonderful time of the year, but it's because somebody understands what you're going through. Somebody has lived it for you. They get your loneliness. They get your pain. They get that you don't feel like you're a good mom or dad or student or you're failing or you're falling short or you don't know how to get from where who you are to where you want to be. Jesus understands that. He gets it. And because he gets it, he gives you a way to get from where you are to where you want to be. And you're afraid you won't have it when it gets to your last breath, or you're afraid you'll give up the fight, or you're afraid that your prayers won't happen. He gets it. And we're going to look at how much he gets it and why this transforms us. We look at the incarnation, we look at this God becoming flesh at Christmas, but we really have the opportunity every time we take communion because that's what this is. We, he says, my body was given for you. My flesh was given for you. And we get to taste of this. We get to, to have this because the incredible thing is that because he came in the flesh, we get to walk with his spirit living inside of us so that our flesh is transformed. It's an amazing thing. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he gave thanks and he gave it to his followers. And he said, take and eat. This is my flesh. It is given for you. When you take this, do it in remembrance of me. And then likewise, after supper, he took a cup of wine. And after giving thanks, he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood. Side note, there's no blood without a body. He can't die on the cross if he's not in a body. Jesus doesn't just love you hypothetically and in principle. He loved you corporally. Corporal means body. 
He loved you with his body and his blood. He poured himself out for you because you are so valuable. This is my blood of the new covenant. It is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, we humbly take your flesh and your blood for those of us who believe in you, proclaiming your death in the flesh until you come again. Lord, we thank you that somehow the divine was squeezed into a human body. I can't imagine how uncomfortable this body must have been for you who knew from all eternity the freedom that comes from not being in this corrupted world, and yet you subjected yourself, humbled yourself, emptied yourself for us. Lord, because we are so loved and so valued, Lord, help us as we take this sacrament, this reminder, this means of grace to remember that we are loved so much. Help us to do this, Lord, and to remember that you are transforming us through your Spirit, even as you're transforming and rescuing this wrecked world.